get seated, uh, go ahead and pull out a Bible with me. We're going to continue to be in Revelation tonight. We're going to continue to be in Revelation all school year long. It is going to take us that long, but I think you guys are enjoying it. I know that I am enjoying it. We're kind of in the middle of seven miniature letters that Jesus writes, that Jesus speaks to seven churches in Asia. We're in the third letter tonight. Starting in chapter four, there's going to be more uh, visions, a lot more symbols, uh, some of the stuff we learned about in chapter one. So that is coming. But man, these seven letters, they're rich. And I'm excited to get into the one we got tonight in Revelation 2, chapters 12, uh, verses 12 through 17. Uh, but before we get there, uh, I want to tell you about my, I think, I think it's my favorite movie of all time. I think it is. It's Rocky IV from the Rocky Balboa series. Raise your hand if you've ever seen the Rocky series. You know about Rocky IV. I've actually got a picture up here that we'll throw on the screen of a, of a picture from that movie. Now, Rocky Balboa is on the left. A guy named Ivan Drago, a Russian, is on the right. And this movie is incredible. I'm telling you. Like, 10 out of 10, you need to go watch. You don't have to watch all the Rocky movies, but this is the best one. And you've got to watch Rocky IV. And let me just tell you, just a little background. I don't want to spoil it necessarily. Take that back. I'm spoiling it tonight. I can't help it. You got this, you got Yvonne Drago on the right, all right? Now, before this fight, Yvonne Drago, just call him Drago from now on, he had a fight with a guy named Apollo Creed. Apollo Creed. And Apollo Creed, at this point in time, was one of Rocky's best friends, And in the ring, going toe-to-toe with Drago, Apollo Creed actually dies. Drago, because he's so strong, he's so big, he's so good, he actually kills Apollo Apollo Creed in the middle of the ring. And Rocky's he's hot. That was his friend, right? And so him and Drago, they schedule a match in Russia. And he he goes toe-to-toe with Drago. And you can tell uh, Rocky looks outmatched. He's way smaller. He's pretty ripped in that picture, but uh, Drago's a little bit stronger. He's a little bit better of an athlete. Really, in every category, when it comes to boxing, Rocky's outmatched. The only thing he has more of than Drago, which is clear throughout the match, is he has more heart than Drago. And I always used to look up for Rocky. My, my dad loves the Rocky series, so we would, I would grow up watching these with my dad and when Rocky would fight Drago, I'd be in our living room. I would get, you know, kind of my boxing attire on. I'd had some fake gloves. I think they were like Hulk hands. And I would pretend to fight Drago. And if you've ever seen this movie, spoiler alert, this match is brutal. It's brutal for Rocky. It's bad for Rocky. There's blood everywhere. It's Rocky's blood. It is a brutal fight. But here's the thing. Every time I watch this movie... And as a kid, when I used to reenact this movie, I saw the blood going everywhere. I saw Rocky getting punched. I saw Rocky look like he was about to go down. But he just kept punching. And he kept punching. And he kept punching. And he never went down. And if he went down, he got up. And guess what? He kept punching. So every time I watch this, I'm always aware of two things. One, I'm aware of who Rocky is fighting. A very dangerous Yvonne Drago. But every time I watch, I never get nervous. It goes all 15 rounds, but there's not one round where I am nervous watching that fight. You want to know why? Because I've seen the end. 
and Rocky wins in the 15th round. He conquers Ivan Drago. So I always know who the enemy is, and I always know how this match ends. And I want to paint this picture for us tonight. I want to paint this picture of you and I in a boxing match. But it's not just a boxing match. This is a fight for our lives. I think there's a really good chance you walked through those doors tonight not realizing that you were in the middle of a war. But tonight you're going to see through our text that you're actually in the fight of your life. Not with some guy named Drago, but with what someone, what the Bible refers to as the dragon, as Satan. He is the enemy. And to anyone who's watching, to anyone who's in this fight, it may look like, hey, we're simply overmatched because the enemy, he is dangerous. But here's what we got to remember. We got revelation. We get the end of the dragon. We know the outcome, and so does Jesus. And so he's going to give the Pergamum church and this church right here tonight some instructions as we face the dragon, as we face the enemy. And those instructions are really pretty clear. I'm going to put it in boxing terms. Here's our main point tonight. Our main point is to simply keep punching. That's your command tonight. That's my command tonight. This is the application of our text tonight. The main point, keep on punching. We're going to be in Revelation 2, 12 through 17, but to start, I'm just going to read the victory verse in verse 17, and it says this. Jesus says to the Pergamum church, we're going to learn about them soon, he says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that any distraction from the enemy within these walls, any attack from the enemy within these walls, any temptation that gets put on any student's heart, on their minds, to their left, to their right, in front of them, behind them, during this next 30 to 35 minutes would be totally removed. We do not have time to mess around with foolish games when we are in the middle of the fight of our lives. So tonight, God, would you remind us that we're in this fight? Would you show us the enemy, but God, would you show us the outcome? And during this fight, would we be committed tonight to just keep punching? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So tonight, if you and I are going to keep punching, if we're going to survive this fight, I think we need to know at least two things, and I've already mentioned them. First, we need to know who we're punching And second, we need to know why we're punching. Or to put it a little bit differently, we need to know who the enemy is, and we need to know what the end is. And so we're going to look at both of those things tonight in our text, the enemy and the end. So the first thing we're going to do tonight, the first thing we must do tonight, is we got to know who we're fighting. We must know the enemy. Revelation 2 Verse 12 and 13 says this. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum writes the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Verse 13. I know where you dwell, 
where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So we learn a couple of things about the city of Pergamum in these these verses. The city of Pergamum. First, we, we see that Jesus calls Pergamum the place where Satan's throne is. And then later in verse 13, he says that Pergamum is where Satan dwells. I think many of you know, especially you high schoolers because you've been there with me, my favorite city in the world is Chicago, Illinois. I love Chicago. Does anybody know Chicago's nickname? You just want to yell it out. The Windy City. Yeah, and now we got, other, we got cities with other nicknames. You got Las Vegas, Sin City. You got Nashville, Music City. Chicago is... The Windy City, and if you've ever been there, you know exactly why it's called the Windy City. Well, what about this for a city nickname, right? Jesus looks at Pergamum, and he gives him this nickname. It's Satan's city. Because apparently, Satan was so active in Pergamum, he had such a stronghold in this city that Jesus described it as the place where he dwelt. That's kind of scary, And that was the reality of the city in Pergamum. And similar to what we saw last week in Smyrna and the week before that in Ephesus, Pergamum, it's another city in Asia that was known for two particular things. One, false gods, and two, false worship of those false gods. This is kind of cool. Pergamum was actually one of the centers of worship for the Greek god Zeus. You probably all heard of him. Pergamum was one of the places where Zeus was worshipped. It was the center of worship for Zeus. Pergamon was also a city that was known and heralded and praised for its emperor worship. And so as Jesus looks at this city, and, and based on what he sees, he calls it Satan's city, meaning it is the hub, it is the center of evil in Asia Minor and maybe of the entire world at this time. That's Pergamum. But of course, you and I are reading this text here in Revelation because of this. In Satan's city is a church. In Satan's city is a people who belong to Jesus. And as you might could imagine, their allegiance to Jesus in a city that belongs to Satan is causing them quite a bit of suffering and quite a bit of opposition. Because Satan is their enemy. He hates them, and he wants to consume them. And here's the point I want you to understand tonight. He's not just Pergamum's enemy. He's not just their enemy. He is your enemy. He is my enemy. He is our enemy. Now, I don't know if America could be described as the place where Satan's throne is. I'm not in a position to to make that claim, but here's what I do know. If the enemy's throne isn't here in America, I'm pretty sure he has an embassy here. If you don't know what an embassy is, it's, it's essentially the official representation of one country within another country. So for instance, uh, in the country of Nicaragua, there is a U.S. embassy. And this embassy is the headquarters for all U.S. diplomats who are serving within that country of Nicaragua. So I'll just just say this. 
If America is not the place where Satan's throne is, he most certainly has an embassy set up here. Because listen to me. Like just turn on the news. Just get on social media and scroll. Just pay attention a little bit. It is clear the enemy is here at our home, in our country. He is among us. He is working in our midst. And that's kind of scary. And the reason it's scary, and the first thing we need to know about this enemy that we're fighting tonight is simply this. He's dangerous. Satan is dangerous. I don't know if you need to, you need to hear this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. He is not your friend. He is not for you. He does not love you. He does not want what's best for you. I don't care who you are. Satan is against you tonight. He hates you, and he wants to destroy you. He's dangerous. And what's scary is he's actively working in our lives tonight. Whether we know it or not, whether we believe it or not, whether we showed up here knowing it or not. He is dangerous and he is doing everything in his power to keep you from living for Christ. From making his gospel known and spreading his glory among all nations. That's what he's doing in your life. So let's just look at two ways he is doing that tonight or attempting to do that. Two areas that he would love to wreak havoc in your life and in my life tonight. First, on the outside, he is dangerous on the outside. And just so I'm clear, what I'm talking about are are outside of these walls. Like it's kind of a safe space, maybe. Outside of these walls is not safe. I'm talking about outside of the church. So I want you to look back with me to verse 16. Just to see how dangerous our enemy can be on the outside. Verse 13 says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And then he says this, Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Now catch this. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So you see, in Pergamum, outside of the church, was a very dangerous place to be because it was the enemy's territory. And for a guy named Antipas being a witness for Jesus in the enemy's territory meant death. You see, as Antipas, as he lived for Jesus in a city that hated Jesus, the enemy worked to end his life. Satan hated Antipas. He hated the church in Pergamum. He hates you. He hates me. And he is dangerous. But I love this so much. I wish I would have known Antipas because here's here's the deal. Even in the face of death, even in the face of the enemy, going toe-to-toe with Satan, the Bible says that Antipas refused to deny his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is commending, this is cool, the entire Pergamum church because apparently Antipas gets called out, but it wasn't just him who was willing to die for Jesus. It was the entire church in Pergamum who was willing to die for Jesus. None of them were willing to deny their faith, not even if it meant death. 
And just so we're clear, just, just so we're absolutely clear, yes, this happened 2,000 years ago, but this isn't just true for the church in Pergamum. Take a look at church history and you will see that it is filled with men and women who were killed for their faith in Jesus, murdered because they would not, not deny their faith in Christ. You might remember in Acts chapter 7, there's a guy named Stephen who preaches the gospel and people hate him so much for it that they stone him to death. You might recall that all of the apostles, all of the disciples, they end up later in their lives getting martyred, getting murdered for Jesus. Maybe you know about Lady Jane Grey. Lady Jane Grey. Let me tell you about her. Lady Jane Grey was 17 years old. Many of you are 17. Many of you are about to turn 17. Many of you just got done being 17. Lady Jane was 17 years old. It was the year 1554. And Lady Jane's cousin, Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, signed her death warrant. Why? Because Lady Jane refused at 17 years old to back down from her position of sola fide, which is Latin for faith alone. Faith alone in Christ. 17 years old. Your age. And she was more willing to die than to back down from the doctrine of faith alone. Much less the one in whom her faith was Jesus Christ. 17. And maybe you know this or, or maybe you don't, but there's Christians throughout the world today. Like right now who continue to be martyred for the faith in Jesus. Eight years ago, 2015, members of ISIS, I hope you didn't have to see this, I have seen the footage, they live-streamed themselves cutting the heads off of 20 brothers, 20 Christians in Libya. That was eight years ago. You want to know what's even crazier about that story? Right before these 20 brothers were executed, each martyr Shouted out in Arabic, O oh Lord Jesus. They literally, literally chose death over denying Jesus. I don't know if anyone in this room will ever be martyred for their faith in Jesus. Whether that be here in America or whether that be somewhere God calls you to move as a missionary or something else. I don't know. Only God knows. But I do know this. If God calls us to it, you and I in this room must be willing to do it. We must be willing to choose Jesus over life itself. Listen, like right now, even as teenagers living in West Kentucky, I am more than confident to look any one of you in the eye and tell you that you must love King Jesus more than you love life itself. You must love King Jesus more than you love life itself. Some people think that's way too intense. Some people say, hey, Chase, you're, like, you're blowing this way out of proportion well, I think that's the enemy getting to you in this moment if you are claiming that of me. Because it goes against the very commands of Scripture for you or for me to love this world more than we love the world to come. 
You guys know I always, always, always speak well of adults. Always. Sometimes I think it annoys you. But I always do it. But tonight, I simply can't because I'm frustrated. Because here's the truth. We live in a culture where professing adult Christians will look you in the eye and tell you the exact opposite. They will tell you it is okay if you live, if you love the things of this world. They will tell you it's okay if you pursue the things of this world. As long as, hey, you also pursue Christ. Maybe it's 50-50. Maybe it's even on the side. As long as you also love Christ, then it's fine. And I'm going to tell you that that is a lie. Jesus would be flipping tables all throughout churches in our country based on that lie. Because the Bible is very clear. You either follow Jesus Christ or you follow the world. You either love Jesus Christ or you love this world. And I don't know if anyone's telling you to do both, but you can't do both. It's certainly possible that that one day God may call someone in this room to choose Jesus or to choose life. I don't know. But what I do know is it's pretty wise for you as a middle schooler or as a high schooler to go ahead and make that choice now. Because here's the thing. Maybe you won't lose your life. But if you are willing tonight to lose your life for Jesus, how much more willing are you going to be able to go to school tomorrow and choose Jesus over being mocked by some teammates? How much more willing will you be to go to school tomorrow and choose Jesus over being made fun of by some person in your math class? How much more willing will you be to choose Jesus over comfort, Jesus over popularity, Jesus over sports, Jesus over family? If you are willing to die for Christ tonight, like Antipas, like Lady Jane Grey, like Stephen, like all the disciples, all the apostles, millions of people who went before you, then how much more willing will you be to choose Jesus over anything else? You see, the enemy is dangerous, and he is working on the outside of these church walls to do everything he can to keep you from choosing Jesus, to choose anything else, literally. But I'm telling you, don't do it. Instead, keep punching. Be willing to get knocked down, to bleed, to be mocked, to suffer, to even lose your life if God calls you to that for the sake of Jesus Christ. Be willing. He is dangerous. But here's the thing. He's not just coming after you outside of these church walls. Second, I want to show you, he's coming after you inside of these church walls. You see, back in our text in Revelation in verse 13, you just saw how dangerous Satan can be outside, but now look back with me to what the Bible says in verses 14 and 15. Not outside the church, but now he's going to talk about some things that are happening inside the church. Revelation 2, verse 14, But this I have against you, Jesus says. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they may eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so so the enemy, he isn't just working outside the church in Pergamum, but unfortunately he's made his way inside the church 
in Pergamum. In Pergamum, yes, he was willing to kill Christians outside, but he was dividing Christians through false teaching on the inside. This might blow your mind a little bit tonight, but I believe it with my whole heart. The fact that you're here tonight, quite honestly, probably does not intimidate or worry Satan at all. The fact that churches exist in America and throughout the world aren't keeping him up at night. I'm sorry, but the fact that you're here doesn't worry him. You see, what Satan hates, however, are youth ministries and churches that don't just meet, but meet to preach the truth of God's word. I really don't think he minds churches that do not boldly preach the truth of God's word. Because quite frankly, those churches, those youth ministries, will not be very effective for a very long time. And as good as the church in Pergamum was doing on the outside, they were starting to fail on the inside because they were not dealing with the false teaching in their midst. Instead, they let a bunch of of people come in who hold to the teaching of Balaam, to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, came into their body and teach false doctrines. I think on the surface, we might not attribute false teaching in the church today to Satan, but here's what you got to know about Satan. Jesus calls him the father of all lies. The father of all lies. Don't you think that the father of all lies, who is against Christ, who's against the church, who's against good theology, might have something to do with all the false teaching that exists in the church today? I sure do. Because dividing churches, creating false teaching within those churches, is one of the enemy's key strategies inside of the church to keep us from being effective and doing the things God wants us to do. And so what do we, what do we need to do tonight if that is true? What do you need to do tonight if that is true? Well, I would say that each one of us has the responsibility then to continue to diligently search the scriptures, to stick to God's word. We, as a response to Satan, must continue to love our Bibles. We must continue to commit our lives to the faithful teaching of his word. It's not just my responsibility. It is your responsibility to continue to love your Bible, to continue to stick to good teaching. Because the enemy, I'm sure, he would love to consume me by leading me astray into false doctrines, but just as much he would love to consume you by leading you astray into false doctrines. Be careful who you are listening to. Everyone is a preacher on social media. Everyone. Be careful who are you consuming. Who are you listening to in your podcast? Who are you scrolling through on Instagram? Are they faithful to the scriptures? Satan is dangerous inside the church and outside of the church. He's a dangerous enemy, but you have to keep punching. You have to keep fighting. You have to be aware of his attacks, and you got to go on the offensive. The fight against Satan isn't you on your heels trying not to get hit. The fight against Satan is you on your toes running after him, and we're going to see why you can do that very soon. 
We got to keep pursuing Jesus over the world. We got to keep reading the Bible, loving our Bibles, living our Bibles, because this is where it gets good. Yes, the enemy is very dangerous. But second, I want to show you this about the enemy tonight. He doesn't like this. I fully expect you to get distracted in this moment. Because he does not want you to hear what you're about to hear. The enemy is dangerous, and the enemy is wounded. Satan is wounded. This is not actually embedded in our text, but it's certainly implied. Let's ask this question. Why is Satan so desperate to stop you tonight? To stop me tonight? To stop the gospel? To stop the church? I'll tell you why. It's because he's wounded. The Bible says he's walking around like a roaring lion. Yes. Seeking whom he may devour. Yes. But he's a wounded lion. He is a lion who is bleeding. He knows he's been defeated. He knows his time is short, and so he's desperate. If you don't believe me, I think these are going to pop up on the screen as well. Colossians 2 says this. To give you a little backdrop before verse 15, Paul writes, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is where it gets real good. This... Your sin, your guilt, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then verse 15 says this. He, that's Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, the rulers and authorities in that verse that Paul is writing about It's not the governors of the earth. It's not the kings of the earth. He's actually talking about the demonic realm. He is talking about Satan. And the point of verse 15 is that through the cross, through his death, Jesus Christ has disarmed Satan. He has wounded Satan. He has bound Satan. He has shackled Satan. So this lion that's walking about all throughout the earth, seeking whom he may devour, he roars really loud. He is scary. He is dangerous. But he is wounded. He is hurt. And his time is ticking. Why? Because Christ has won. Hear that again. Satan, Christ has won. Through his death, through his resurrection, Jesus Christ has overcome the enemy Satan. Satan has struck his heel, but Jesus has crushed his head. So here's the point I want to make to you tonight. This is good. You and I are fighting in a fight, but we're fighting on the winning side. We're fighting on the winning side. Yes, this fight's hard. Yes, it is bloody. But our enemy has been cut wide open. He is bleeding to death, and he will fall very soon. So in the meantime, as we remember our enemy, that yes, he's wounded, he's dangerous, but he's wounded, that means you and I got to keep punching Right, when life gets hard, when the, the enemy attacks you, you got to keep punching. When death comes to you, you got to keep 
punching. When the enemy tries to oppress you, you got to keep punching. No matter what he throws your way in life, this week, you have to keep punching. Because not only do we know our enemy, but here's where it gets even better somehow. We also know the end. We know who we're fighting, and we know how this match ends. There's really two ends that we must know. There's an end to the unfaithful, and there's an end to the faithful. And we're going to look at both of those. So, so first, let's quickly look at the end of the unfaithful in verse 16. The unfaithful. Those who do not join Christ's side by faith, but choose to reject Christ. What is your end tonight if you are an unbeliever in this room tonight? Revelation 2.16 says this. Jesus gives a, a command. He says, therefore, repent. If you don't repent of your sins tonight, here's what will happen. If not, I will come to you soon. And Jesus says, I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. Man, I can think of, of no more terrifying position to be in tonight than to be an unbeliever in this room. Why? Because you got an enemy, his name's Satan, and if you don't repent and trust in the Lord God Jesus Christ, you'll have another enemy, and his name is Jesus. And you are no match for Jesus. I went to a, a Kentucky football game this past Saturday, huge Cats fan. I went with Caleb Wyatt. This is the first time I ever got to experience the catwalk. If you know what the catwalk is, it's where we line up, a bunch of blue fans, you know, they line up and we watch our Wildcats walk into the stadium to to win another football game. I didn't realize this, guys. I know I'm not big. But I didn't realize how big they were. <laughs> oh, man. Those are some big dudes. Like, not one of them. I don't, think I, I reach, I don't think I reach their belly button, some of them, okay? It was a little embarrassing. And I realized this. Sometimes I watch the game and I'll scream. It's like, man, how did you miss that block? Man, how did you not find that hole? How did you not break, how did you not break that tackle? How did you not make that tackle? And now I'm looking at them, I'm like, oh, that's why they're pretty big. And I realized that if I was in that football game, I'm going to get murdered. Murdered. See, I realize I'm not big enough to play against those guys. I will get hurt very badly. If you're an unbeliever in this room, I think many of you think you are invincible. You're pretty big, you're pretty strong, you're pretty cool. And then maybe you can go toe-to-toe with Jesus Christ. You're dead wrong. You are no match for Jesus. To the unfaithful, Jesus is going to come back and war against you. And you're going to lose. He's going to consume the unfaithful. But thankfully for you and me, Christ has made a way for us through his death and resurrection, to not line up against him, to not line up in opposition from him, but to line up alongside of him. He has offered us a jersey tonight to the winning team so that through him you can become conquerors. You can win the game. Revelation 2.17 says this. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Man, that's good. I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So hear me. While Christ is going to consume the unfaithful, here he promises to save the faithful. 
And just so we are clear, the, the faithful here is everyone in this room who has trusted in Jesus Christ and that faith is evident because now you are willing to love Jesus more than you love anything else this world has to offer, even life itself, if it comes to it. If that is you, if you are the faithful, when Jesus comes back, he's not going to war against you. You don't got to get shoulder pads on and line up against Jesus, but instead he promises two things to you, the faithful. First, he promises hidden manna. What in the world is that? And second, he promises a white stone that he's going to give to you, and on that stone is going to be a new name that no one knows except you and him. What in the world is that? Given the symbolism of this book that we have been instructed by Jesus in verse 1 to interpret it with, I'm going to tell you what they are. I think the manna and the stone are symbolic for a couple of things. First, I think the hidden manna is symbolic for Jesus himself, and here's why I believe that. In John chapter 6, verses 48 through 51, this is what Jesus says. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers, he's talking about Israel, ate the manna in the wilderness. Maybe you knew that story. And they died, Jesus says. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread, Jesus says, that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus, in John 6, calls himself the bread of life. He is the manna that comes down from heaven. He's, of course, not not literally manna, but he's speaking symbolically to point out to us that anyone who partakes in him, anyone who trusts in him, anyone who eats his manna will not die, but you will live forever. He will give you hidden manna. He will give you himself when he comes back on the clouds. Man, I cannot wait to receive hidden manna. Now that white stone with a, with a new name written on it, it's a little bit more difficult. It's a little bit more interesting, to, to be honest, because it's a little bit more complex. And so, so I've read, I agree, that the color of the stone, first off, it's very significant. What color is it? It's white. Good. It's white. And I think the reason it's white, follow, follow along with me here. This is a little bit tough, but I promise you can get this. For most cultures throughout history, even our very own culture, white has always been symbolic for purity. Always. If you're unfamiliar with this, that's why a bride typically wears white on her wedding day. So here's the point Jesus is making. When he returns, he's going to have a white stone to give to the faithful. And this white stone communicates something to us. That you and I have been made pure. By the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been dressed in the righteousness of Jesus. And according to Jesus, this stone is going to have a new name written on it. And no one's going to know it except you and Jesus. It's a little bit more confusing, but follow along with me. Because this directly comes from the Old Testament. I'll show it up on the screen. I think I have it on the screen. Isaiah 62.2 says this. The nations shall see your righteousness. That's the white stone, our righteousness in Jesus. And all the kings, your glory, and you shall be called a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Being given a new name doesn't pop up in Revelation. It goes way back to Isaiah. 
Now, what's interesting is this prophecy in Isaiah 62 was originally given to the nation of Israel. Are you following? It's important. But here in Revelation, Jesus clearly, finally applies it to the New Testament church. To the church in Pergamum and every church that comes after it. That's because the church, please hear this, the church has become not the replacement but the fulfillment of Israel. We receive the new names. And I think this is the first reason I would, I would say these new names are significant. All of us who trust in Christ will receive a new name just as God promised to Israel. And the second reason our new name is important is because it cues us in on the new identity that we currently have and will have in Christ. So follow along with me. What's, what's your name? Maybe you can think about it. My name is Chase, obviously. If you, were, if you were a new student, if I didn't know you, I would walk up to you, I would put out my right hand, I would shake it and say what? Hey, I'm Chase. I would say, I am Chase. My name is associated with my identity. It's who I am. I am Chase. When Christ, Jesus says, I will receive a new name. I will receive a new identity as a glorified saint when he comes back. And my new name will reflect that new identity. Now we can ask the question, will it actually be a new name that only me and Jesus know? Like, will I actually be given a new name? I don't see why not. I think that's very likely. But the significance, I think isn't so much on the name itself. Like, what is it? It's on the purpose behind being given a new name. That A, the church has fulfilled the role of Israel, and B, we have a new identity. We've been made new by Jesus. This is amazing stuff, and this is the end of all who remain faithful. We get hidden manna, and we get a white stone with a new name. Like, sign me up. Like, this is what I want. I will gladly be faithful unto death if God calls me to that, if death means being with Jesus Christ, my manna, for all eternity, dressed in his righteousness with a brand new identity. Sign me up. I choose Christ no matter what. So here on this earth, what should I continue to do then? What should you continue to do then? The whole point was you got to keep punching. You got to keep persevering. Here on this earth, until Jesus comes back to give you that manna, you have to keep following Jesus. You have to keep obeying your Bible. You got to keep doing what is right, no matter what may happen as a result of it. You're in the middle of a fight, but you got to look ahead to how this fight ends. So you see, Rocky versus Drago, it was an ugly boxing match. It was bad. Rocky got knocked down a lot, and some of you are going to get knocked down. Some of you are going to have injuries. Some of you are going to suffer. Some of you are going to die. Rocky bled a lot, but he kept punching. And I kept cheering for Rocky, because as ugly as it gets, I know who won in the end. Rocky beat Drago. He fought all 15 rounds, he did not lay down once, and he conquered the enemy. Well, you also have an enemy. And whether you walk through those doors believing it or not, he is after you and you're in the fight of your life against him tonight. He's dangerous and he's coming for you. And the truth is he's going to knock you down, but you got to get up and you got to keep fighting, even if it means laying down your life. 
Because as dangerous as he is, we have the book of Revelation. We have the end. And so if we stay faithful, we keep punching, that end is going to be here sooner than we know it. And Jesus, our manna, is going to come down from heaven and he is going to defeat that wounded lion once and for all. His time is about to run up. And so as real as he is, and as real as this fight that you have against Satan tonight, Jesus' return is just as real. So the whole point, students, is no matter what he does this week, no matter what he does this month, this school year, just keep punching. No matter what, because the end is coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder that we are up against a dangerous enemy tonight. But through the cross, we do not have to be scared. Through the cross, we do not have to be defensive. But instead, we can look to the cross and realize that Christ has disarmed Satan. He has wounded Satan, and through his victory, we can become conquerors. God, may each student in this room continue to be faithful to Jesus Christ no matter what comes. So, the precious name. Amen. Amen. Hey, guys, hang with me for one second. We're going to do.